Welcome to Record Crimes. In each episode, we'll be getting into anything from copyright legal battles, crimes committed by people in the music industry, and and everything everything in between. People in the music industry? Doing illegal things? Really? Hi. Hi. Howdy. Salutations. How is it going? Oh, no. No. I just had to take a sip of tea real quick. Ew. That was gross. I know. I've just been really dramatic this morning, as we know. I also have been. When I am a little hungover, I'm very dramatic. I also lost my voice last night. Well, I am hungover, but I didn't lose my voice. My, I, so, like, my vocal fry is really going to be coming out this episode. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this week kind of, like, sucked for no reason. Nothing, like, happened. Nothing, I was about to say, but, like, this also week, nothing, nothing really happened. happened. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of, like, this week like, happened, uh, and that was it. I just felt like the week was, like, going on without me, and I was just sitting. I know we've talked about this, but, like growing and I just talked to my sister about this too word for word I said I'm really happy we were sweatsuit kids yeah see I was an overalls kid and I always wore these little pink sandals and they were like my favorite thing ever and I'd wear a lot of headbands like Mm -hmm. I would rock Mm -hmm. a headband Um, no my sister and I we had those like matching sweatsuit top and bottom from like old navy so they would have like graphics on them i want i want a pair of those but it was very like like you know how even now like everyone's like into princess diana's 90s sports fashion where she's got like a crew neck on and then like shorts and i've been doing that forever whatever that was me in sweatsuits like my mom was like obsessed with diana which is my middle name, by the way. Love that. Such a sleigh. <laughs> um, and she dressed us in sweatsuits too much. But my friends, other than you, those friends. Who? Like, you have that- friends other than me? <laughs> Are you kidding? But like growing up, all my friends would be like, you only wore sweatsuits. And I was like, that's all I had, guys. And they matched. At least they were matching. I wasn't mixing and matching the sweatsuits. No, they're jealous of how, how much to- you were slaying as a young child. Like, And I- now I'm obsessed with Old Navy still. They, Old Navy needs to have matching sweatsuits for adults. Old Navy got kind of expensive over these past few years, huh? Because I, I remember almost like exclusively shopping at Old Navy because deals. And it was good quality, too. It still is. Yeah, I think I probably have I a shirt jeans. Old Navy I just probably got, to this day. Yeah. yeah. I wish they did some Halloween stuff. Not that I need like more Halloween in my wardrobe. I just kind of like, don't. I like spooky shirts. And I saw like, I've seen the Goosebumps Mm-hmm. cover shirts mm-hmm. and i like the tie-dye or like any sort of horror movie reference maybe you'd be able to find something like that at like urban outfitters yeah. i feel like they have a lot of graphic tees well what like that. sparked this was at work i had a really weird encounter with a customer and i was wearing my silence of the lambs t-shirt yeah which and her name for, is clarice hilarious yeah hilarious <laughs> it all lines up and do i have a moth tattoo i don't want to talk about yeah, it yes she does um <laughs> and then she's like why does everyone always say this joke why don't i say this joke why does everyone go at me secretly i love it anyway she likes it but my silence of the lamb t-shirt is just like a bottle label and it's the buffalo bills lotion oh one and it has like a moth on it but it's like where'd you get that i got it online and i got it a few years ago so it's very simple obviously i'm not walking around with like a fucking lotion t-shirt for no reason like it's a reference to the movie obviously and this guy comes up to me and i'm like on the register and you know like i greet him i'm like hi yes i i work at a coffee shop part-time you know, I say, hi, hello, welcome. Like, what can I get for you? And then he goes, hello. Yep, radio silence. And then looks at my t-shirt <laughs> and goes, you like horror or something? And very stone cold face also. That monotone as well. What if you're just like, no, I love lotion. Yeah. And I, I like was wearing like, in a vino top. And I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> ha ha. And a vino top. I was like, oh, yeah, like my Science of the Lamb t-shirt. I was like, yeah. And he was like, oh, yeah. Okay. And then he was like, 
can I have a latte? And I was like, what just happened? I was, and so that just lit a flame under my butt. And I was like, you know what? I want more spooky t-shirts because I don't know. It just like really was a weird, I was like, okay. I think it's like the conversation on paper would seem like a normal back and forth, but the tone of voice like, and he never looks me like in the eye. He just like looked at my t-shirt. He, I was like, looking at her boobies. What boobs? Anyway. So I'm standing there like upright and you know, we're about the same height. So it's not even like he's looking down at me yeah. and I like, can't make that eye contact. Like he's very much like not like avoiding the straight across gaze. Yeah. And he's just like, it's almost as if he's speaking to my t-shirt. I hate that. In his monotone voice. A lot yeah. of people do that to me, but it's just because I have big boobs. So, and I'm short. So they use that as an excuse to like, I'm just looking down at you. God. Being short, though, it's kind of funny because it's so much more obvious when someone does, like, an up and down to you, you know? Mm. Because, like, they're already having to look down and then they're like, mm, mm, mm. Anyway. <laughs> Loved that. Well, welcome back to our podcast. Welcome, babies. We have... I, I know my stories. I know my story is fucking whack. Mine's troubling. Yeah. And yeah, so sorry, this, this might, might, y'all might need to sit down for this one. Yeah, this one might be <laughs> a little bit of an intense episode. Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going first again? I'm so sorry. You? Yeah. Okay, so what are you doing? Tell um, me all about it. Makeshift, not so makeshift creative title is Chuck Berry and the toilet tapes. And then I called oh. him a piece of shit because toilet <laughs> tapes. <laughs> Boo. Um... <laughs> I titled my whole thing Toilet Gate. Toilet Gate. Instead of like Watergate. When she was telling me, I was asking her in the car earlier, I was like, you never told me what you were doing this week. She just said Chuck Berry and that it was like disturbing and no one got killed or anything. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was about that, but I didn't know any details. So I'm very excited to get. So you've heard of this? I've heard, I've heard like it being referenced or joked about. Got it. See, I haven't even heard it being referenced or joked about, which was so surprising to me because this is crazy okay so i just want to give out a little warning um there's a lot of kind of gross graphic stuff dealing with bodily fluids and sexual abuse of women and underage girls so if any of that is not your cup of tea you might want to fast forward through my story but i just want to give a little warning out before i get into any of this okay so I guess let's just jump into this toilet bowl Stop. of a story. Are, are you going to be doing the toilet thing the whole time? or Yes. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. All the jokes I haven't heard about this Buckle are now in. my jokes. <laughs> okay, so Chuck Berry, he's known to some as the father of rock and roll, but his infamy is perhaps a little bit more disturbing than his fans could ever imagine because, you know... I would have considered myself a fan before knowing any of this because he has laid down the groundwork for literally everything that we know in here today. Aside from like the typical drug charges and run-ins with the law musicians in this section of the industry typically have, he found himself buried in child abuse, underage porn, and class action lawsuit charges following the discovery of dozens of videotapes, photographic slides, and books of women during like a drug raid on his property they found all this shit some of the tapes and photos were found to show underage girls and although that's bad it isn't even the worst part i'm sorry to say i hate that and then i um i just want to say i'm sorry for discovering this story and this crime and sharing it today i'm I'm really sorry it is so alarming i'm already like i just feel like everyone needs to know though because he is such an iconic figure if you're gonna know someone know them for all of them because i was shocked so welcome to toilet gate Stop. <laughs> <laughs> um a little bit of background on chuck berry he was born in st louis missouri on october 8 1926 to martha and henry berry i think it's notable to mention that his parents were the grandchildren of enslaved individuals that migrated to st louis from the south during world war one in order to find like better employment opportunities and better living conditions So he was the fourth child out of six kids total, and he grew up exposed to music in the church where he sang in the choir. And in high school, he would sing in the talent shows, and his natural like stage presence and popularity kind of made him want to learn the guitar for himself. 
so that he didn't need an accompaniment. Like, he just wanted to be the whole show. So he would go on to study with local jazz guitar legend Ira Harris, who would help lay down the, like, original foundation for Barry's sound. I tried looking a little bit more into, like, Ira Harris, and he did a lot of old-timey, like, jazz and some ragtime stuff. Yeah, he's a big... He's also a huge name in that era. Absolutely. But what also bothered me is whenever I, like, looked up him, most of his story now is just like, oh, he taught Chuck Berry. Oh, I see. And that made me annoyed because gotcha. i was like clearly if you helped shape the the person of the father of rock and roll like i feel like you are a little bit yourself the father of rock and roll sure. anyway yeah you get a little you get a little dibs on that yeah so in 1944 he dropped out of high school and went on a road trip with some of his friends to california and along the way in kansas city they found an empty pistol in a parking lot and decided to go on a robbery spree that's uh okay yeah so at age 17 he was arrested with his friends and sentenced to the maximum 10 years in jail um wait how old was he 17 what that you're not tried as like a minor at that point that seems long like did they kill anyone no i do know that they they robbed a couple of like high stakes oh it was like multiple like yeah multiple places i think there was like a bank there was a bakery or like a cafe okay so they were just going on like a little spree yeah they thought it would just like who the fuck finds a gun and is like let's go rob some people him and his friends did so he was sentenced to the maximum 10 years however he was released on good behavior three years after his original sentence so in 1947 he was released on the cusp of his 21st birthday he moved right back to st louis and married his wife the meta Suggs, who's like Toddy Suggs is what he calls her, in 1948. Um, So really quick turnaround. And they would go on to be married for 68 years and have four children. Oh my God. Yeah. They stayed married through all the shit that I'm about to tell you, which is insane. And Toddy. Yeah. Literally, I'm like, Toddy, my girl, what are we doing? But um, 68 years, that's so long. So long. Literally until he died. He also started playing guitar again when he got married and moved back. And he became a part of like bands with people from high school and would just like gig around with them. So he started playing again. Mm -hmm. Not so much kind of the singing, but guitar playing as well. During the mid 1950s, he would take frequent trips to Chicago looking for like a record contract. And in 1955, he met legendary blues musician Muddy Waters, who suggested that Barry meet with Chess Records. Chess Records was like the head of the blues or like rhythm and blues empire right in chicago well as we're gonna find out but like a lot of what we now consider to be like you know classic rock and roll was born here out of like the rhythm and blues so mm-hmm. a few weeks after meeting muddy waters he would write his song maybelline he took that to the executives at chess records and they immediately offered him a contract Oh, wow. And within months, Maybelline reached number one on the rhythm and blues charts and number five on the pop charts. A lot of people say that with like its unique blend of the rhythm and blues beat, country guitar licks, and kind of like the flavor of the Chicago blues narrative and storytelling, that Maybelline became like the first true rock and roll song ever written. Hell yeah. So that's that's his like big, this is his send off. And it's also notable at, like, the time and honestly probably the reason why rock and roll was just, like, born in general was because Barry managed to, like, achieve popularity over the country's strong racial divide. I remember reading, like, during his childhood where he was in St. Louis. Like, St. Louis itself was very segregated still. Yeah. I think there's a quote of him saying, like, the first white person he ever met not even met, saw, was when he was three years old. Wow. And it was because it was the white firefighters putting out a fire, and he just thought that their faces were white because of how scary the fire was. He thought, like, their their faces were just, what? like, drained of blood. Oh, my God. Because it was so scary. But then his father was like, no, no. those are white people, and they don't live in our part of the town. Okay. So segregation, unfortunately, thriving at this point. Right. But Right. His, like, Barry's popularity with his sound managed to unite people on both sides of the racial divide. So his crossover, like, created by mixing the blues and rhythm and blues with storytelling that, like, spoke to, like, the experience of the youth in general without singling out. Because, I mean, like, with 
the Chicago blues narrative, a lot of that is, you know, black stories being told. Yeah. And he was able to represent that without alienating like young black communities to where it's like, oh, I only appeal to this side. Like, Right. The whole... It's like a little more, like, uh, mass appeal or something. Yeah, it was enough to give them a voice. Right. With a broad... Broad audience. Yeah, which was so powerful because they're being heard and everyone else is also enjoying what's being heard as well. In the late 1950s, songs such as Johnny Be Good, Sweet Little Sixteen, and Carol all managed to crack the top 10 of the pop charts by achieving equal popularity with use on both sides. He did a really good job with like creating this new sound and having it be to where everyone was enjoying it and everyone wanted this to be like in the mainstream of music. Right. But unfortunately, in 1961, his career was derailed again when he went to prison for violating the Mann Act. And I'll go into this a little bit more later, but short and sweet, the Mann Act basically is just like, you're not allowed to transport women across state lines for immoral purposes. And he was caught transporting a young woman over what, state like lines. What, like a sex worker or something? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, okay, I see. Um, so he spent 20 months in jail. Upon his release, he started writing songs like Normal Again, picking up where he left off in a way. It's said by other bandmates and friends in the industry that knew him well that he was never the same after this second stay in prison. Like, so this one was a little rougher than the last and it changed the way he acted after he went from being an easygoing guy, like the one that would jam in dressing rooms and just have a good time. And now he was cold, distant and bitter. Oh, wow. So he started just like changing his demeanor a bit. But I'll say like perhaps the best measure of Barry's influence is the extent to which other popular artists have copied his work, as we know. The Beach Boys, the Rolling Stones, the Beatles have all covered various Chuck Berry songs Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones said, and I quote, it's very difficult for me to talk about Chuck Berry because I've lifted every lick he's ever played. This is the man that started it all. So yeah, like this man laid it down for everyone that we hear in like modern rock. He kind of started it. And this is why I was so shocked to hear this side of him because he's like, this is literally the father of rock and roll and I had no idea. Right. So as I just like mentioned previously and lightly, Barry had been to jail a few times before the drug raid Mm -hmm. in 1990. Well, there was like the first one he was younger. The Mm -hmm. second time was when he was like at the height of his fame in 1960s for the transporting of a 14 year old girl across state lines. 14. 14. Yeah. That's not a sex worker. That's a, Mm -hmm. Oh my God. And uh, again in 1979 for tax evasion. Okay. I don't know if he went to prison for that. I do know that he's had to like pay out for everything that he's done. And he's got jail time as well. But I wanted to dive a little deeper into the nature and court proceeding of the, like his first really big charge, which was, or second really big charge, which was the man act violation with this 14 year old girl, because I think it, it's a good foreshadow of the shit that goes down. So he was charged with violating the Federal Man Act, which is also known as the White Slave Traffic Act of 1910. It prohibits transporting women across state lines for prostitution or debauchery or for any other immoral purpose. So while the act was never repealed, it was amended a few times. So it still exists. Most notably in 1978 to address the issues of child pornography and in 1986 to address the act's misuse against consensual sex by replacing the phrase any other immoral purpose with any sexual activity for which any person can be charged with a criminal offense. So like, because, you know, back in the day, it was immoral to have sex with like not your wife, even if it was consensual. So now... If it's consensual, it's not a crime. They, they've updated it for the times. But right, right, right. in 1907, Congress created committees to investigate the problem of immigrant prostitutes in the country. It was alleged that immigrant women were brought to America for sexual slavery and immigrant men lured American girls into prostitution or white slavery. So the like white slavery, yeah. that's the term that's that they used for sex trafficking. Yeah. yeah, That's what white slavery means, which is why it was called that before. So I'm not going to use that anymore. And I'm also not going to be using their term prostitutes. Yeah, that's so problematic. Yeah, we yeah. will not be using that. Sorry, that was a quote. No, no, it's okay. Um, it's like, it is important to kind of recognize that word was so used against even sex workers that Mm -hmm. were working like willingly because like people just heard that word and were like they don't matter as exactly and i think it's also very important because it is 
this still exists. Oh, of course. And it protects against sex trafficking, but it also like apparently back in the day it didn't like matter what age you were as long yeah. as you were labeled a sex worker, that's even awful. if you were a child. That's awful. You were under the same prosecution. So now it protects the children. Children non-consensual any sort of sex trafficking which is very important back then the communities believed that no girl would enter sex work unless drugged or held captive however the act ended up criminalizing many kinds of consensual sexual activity and had racist undertones yeah of course the phrase immoral purpose was broadly used to prosecute unlawful premarital extramarital or interracial marriages oh wow or relationships so even those that were consensual Meaning, you know, oh, black man and a white woman can't have sex, even if it's consensual. That would be a a crime. A violation of the of the Man Act. Act. Oh my God. Yeah. So we see why this needed to be amended. Right. The victim in question with the Barry case was a 14 year old waitress and sex worker. I'm not going to mention her name here just because she was a minor in this situation. Um, The name is up online if people want to look it up, but I just, out of respect, I didn't really want to bring it back up. Yeah, that's okay. Who Barry picked up while traveling in Mexico and brought back to St. Louis to work as a hostess at his club bandstand nightclub. So he found this girl, child. Child, that's a child. And brought her back to work as a waitress. She was underage, meaning as an immigrant or not, she was not of the age to give consent for any action asked of her by Barry, who later claimed that he was told she was 21. Okay, so. you can, like, try that how, excuse, how but, like, what the fuck? How old was he at this point? Let's think. 1961, so, He's like, 40. Up. He was 40. Like, a little over 40, probably. <sighs> not that that makes it any, like, oh, no, or worse. Absolutely it's not. terrible either yeah. way. I'm just curious. So, he was told she was 21, and then he fired her several, like, weeks after hiring her. So, oh. he, she literally got he literally picked got, up and he transported kidnapped. here. Yes? Yeah. And then fired her after several weeks. And after she was fired, she got busted for sex work. And that's when all this came to light because she told the cops that Barry had sex with her multiple times while on the road, often in the back of his car. 14. 14. Yeah. So the trial, I will say that there were racist undertones present in this trial, which may have denied him a fair trial. But in my opinion, doing something like this, no matter who you are, is terrible and gross. Yeah. Yeah. But he was convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to the maximum five years by Judge George Moore. Five years? But then the mm-hmm. bank robberies got ten? Mm-hmm. I know. Whack. The initial conviction by Judge Moore was overturned because of remarks, racist remarks that he had made during the, the trial. The judge himself? Yeah. The judge said, I quote, I have seen your kind before oh, God. and denied him bail. Wow. Yeah. So because of that original racist trial, he got another trial, but the second jury also convicted Barry, but he wound up serving 20 months behind bars instead, which is still an unfair comparison to the weight of his actions, obviously. I really don't know how the young lady ended up. Yeah. Fucking terrible. Yeah, that's awful. It's fucking terrible. So that happened. And then again, in 1979, he went to prison for tax evasion, but he quickly struck a plea deal in which he admitted to cheating the feds out of $110,000 in income taxes. What was funny to me was that he was like noticeably emotional during this trial, breaking down, mm -hmm, breaking down into tears twice when he was only sentenced to 120 days in prison, but he won't cry during the more severe sex trafficking trial. (sighs) I'm we're very confused over Hello? here. Yeah. So I'm like, what? Okay. So are we ready for the worst of it all? No. No. Okay. <laughs> so scared. a little timeline. In 1979, yes. tax evasion. Okay. By this time, he's already been to prison twice. Mm-hmm. And as we recall, his friends are like, he's not the same. 1985, he received the Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award. 1987, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as the first inductee ever. He was the first? The first. I didn't know that. 1987. And then at the end of 1989, Hosanna Huck, a cook at the Southern Air. The Southern Air was a restaurant that Barry owned back in St. Louis. Yeah. She sued Barry, 
who was 63 at the time, Mm -hmm. saying that he had made videotapes of her changing clothes in the bathroom and using the toilet. Barry made claims that the video cameras were not to spy on his customers or employees, but rather to catch staff members stealing from his business. Because, you know, if you're going to steal from a restaurant, I'd definitely take it to the fucking toilet. Like, what? Thank you. Thank you. The restaurant ended up going out of business the following year. Thank God. Yeah. The heat from the whole case that Hosanna like brought up with this allegation, if that wasn't enough, now the authorities had suspected him of transporting huge loads of cocaine in his guitar case as a part of a multi-million drug operation. Okay. Still a little bit unsure how they got the sniff on that. Right. But the timing along with the Hosanna case and the fire coming from that definitely didn't help. Yeah. So... Hosanna came out in 1989. So in 1990, the drug raid of his home in Wentzville, Missouri happened. They uncovered only two ounces of weed, a shotgun, two rifles, more than $122,000 in cash, and then all these videotapes and photographs. From the findings, he was charged with possession of pot and three counts of child abuse for the underage porn. But get this... All charges in the civil case were dropped when Barry sued the county prosecutor saying that the charges were malicious and politically motivated. Um, uh, but like child porn child though? Porn. Yeah, like they found like the vi- they went through the videos and they found that some of them were underage girls being videotaped in this bathroom. So, Barry avoided the child abuse charges by pleading guilty to a misdemeanor drug charge and given a 6-month suspended jail sentence. He got out of the child abuse charge and still to this day is not charged with that. Oh. Important to note. Okay. Because after the seizure of the videotapes happened, more disturbing details came out and were published publicly in a 1993 scandalous issue of Spy Magazine. And this led Spy to magazine. <laughs> mm-hmm, And this led to 59 women to sue Barry after it was discovered that he indeed installed a video camera in the women's restroom at the Missouri restaurant he owned due to material found on the tapes and further proving Hosanna's claim of his disturbing indecency. Like they needed more evidence and then they busted open his home and they found it. They found everything. Oh my God. Um, So in the spy magazine story, which is, crazy by the way yeah i quoted a few times here okay the journalists dove deep into barry's sexual fetishes involving bodily excretions and a predilection for spying on women in restrooms mm. <laughs> there was a specific section of the story that outlined an instance where he and another woman were recorded relieving themselves in a hotel bathroom in lake tahoe which is like where my family is from kind of so like my childhood memories are like fucked from reading that yeah like they recorded themselves the rest of the article detailed how barry allegedly hid his cameras in the women's restroom in a southern air restaurant on camera or i should say like one camera was evidently placed behind the toilet seat while others were of stalls from an aerial view so there was more than one camera this is so disgusting. Can you describe my fucking face right now? Yeah, you you have just I, been in like constant like your face muscles are gonna hurt after this because you've just are. Been, I'm in yeah, shock. Shock. It's so disgusting. In bold, oh I was God. like, this quote from the spy article says the recordings were then reportedly and painstakingly edited and compiled in a pair of toilet tapes that showed hundreds of women and girls in the act of relieving themselves. Sometimes the frame is frozen for a few seconds, lingering on moments that must have been considered particularly moving. No. I want to apologize for what I just said, but I'm not done. I also want to clarify that partaking in consensual fetish stuff is cool. Whatever. Do whatever you want. I'm not judging that. But the reality of the situation mixed with the fact that it was not consensual, over 59 women were just trying to use the bathroom to just do what we do naturally as humans. And then this creep had the bright idea to videotape them and then edit them into like compilation tapes. Oh my God, I'm nauseous. Nightmares. Like, how could you ever go to the bathroom ever again? Like, for these women to, like, have to go through court and do all this nightmarish. And the part that it says, particularly moving, like, freeze frame of, like, certain, like, that disgusting, disgusting. What 
It just keeps getting worse. Shocking! It just you keeps see worse. why? Toilet gate, guys. Ew. Oh my god. So in 1994, Barry settled for. $830,000 by the class action suit filed by the dozens of women who claimed they had been taped using the bathroom and also settled a similar suit filed by the former restaurant worker, Hosanna, yeah. and another woman for $310,000. So get this. He's paying out a little over a million, but just a little over a million to the father of fucking rock and roll, which is probably not even a dent. Yeah. He admitted to the existence of the tapes but remained persistent in his claims to not know of or partake in the editing or recording of the videos in question. So he was just like, yeah, I have them. He just consumed the content. That's what he said. He was like aware of the existence and was consuming, you know, watching them. Honestly, don't think that's any better. (laughs) No, I don't. But he was just like, I didn't edit those. I didn't record those. The difference. I don't know what you're talking about. The difference of like, um, is that there's two consenting adults mm-hmm. and this is not like a kink. It's just a dark, dark, like this is fantasy. literally sexual it's abuse like a, or it makes it better for him because he's like knowing that they don't know or something. Mm-hmm. I feel like that. Ugh. Yeah. <sighs> so he settled out with, like I said, around like $1.3 million paid to all the women, but got no jail time. Because of all these settlements? Like, were they just... I guess. I guess sexual harassment isn't, like, enough for fucking jail time even on this freaky level. But like I said before, like, how did I never learn about this? How's no one ever talked about this? Yeah. It's so shocking. And we've never heard about it. Bad. That's... Bad. Horrible. A lot. A lot. That's why I was, like, the amount, the sheer amount of stuff that was collected is what... I don't want to say with like not be that's what makes it shocking to me the fact that this was never uh, anyway um he died oh no you're fine he died at the age of 90 in 2017 on march 18th lived so long but he's still like you know he's remembered as a legend no i was gonna say i actually remember when he died because we went to music school obviously so people on our facebook and stuff were like r.i.p chuck berry and heart and whatever did you kind of have to dig to find this shit or do you have to like look it up specifically? Because I feel like when you look up Chuck Berry, that's not the first few mm-hmm. things that no, show up. No, it's not. But there are like once I started putting like the keywords in, yeah. it started coming about. I found the spy article. But you know what I couldn't find? Publicist was working overtime. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What I couldn't find was I wanted his wife's. Oh, like kind of her. Insight. Yeah. And I couldn't find anything. And honestly, for something as crazy as this it doesn't surprise me because you know maybe i can't imagine air her yeah yeah, like the drama that she was dealing with at home you know after like coming to terms with this and like seeing this and then having to deal with her husband who she stayed married to horrible um this entire time they never fucking broke up or anything and she was like cool you had sex with a 14 year old that you transported from mexico while we were married and then you have tapes of you like shitting with other women in a Tahoe bathroom and you're doing this to all those other women. And she stayed married to him. I will never understand. Oh my God. I will literally never understand that level. So nauseating. I know. Nightmarish. That is something. That's a nightmare. Genuinely. That's like, if this was like a horror movie, I would, I could, I probably couldn't watch it. I would not be able to watch a horror movie like that. Um, but yeah, so he, he died and he's still remembered as a legend. There was an author, Bruce Pegg, who wrote a 2002 biography on Barry titled Brown-Eyed Handsome Man, The Life and Times of Chuck Berry. Um, He described him as a complicated man. Oh, God. He was like, for those that knew him well, they told me about like what a wonderful family man he was. But he was a walking contradiction, and that's for sure. And I was like, okay, uh, fuck that after learning all this. Yeah. Yeah, what? Um, he has a shit stain on rock and roll history, y'all. And like I said before, if you're going to remember the whole person, like remember the whole person. Yeah. I feel like that kind of brings in the argument, you know, when people are like, I can separate the art from the artist. Mm-hmm. And that's like a huge debate. And not only in Absolutely. within the music industry, but like even just general music. Listeners. Exactly. Yeah. I have a hard time with that separation. Like, I do too. I have a really hard time with that. Well, it's it. because it's such a creative art. I mean, some people can just like, you know, write songs to appeal to others. But when you write something, it's like coming from your soul. It's like who you are. If who Not you- even that, but like, I get that everyone's just like, they're all people, you know? They're people. But also, 
also they're just people. So like there's no reason to put those people on some sort of like higher like if your friend was doing that shit, you would not be like, Yeah, but he was That makes sense. You know? Yeah, no, you're right. Like yeah. I that's just my view. The pedestal like, yeah. allows for that separation right, to be right. more forgivable. And because they're almost like set at like a higher like level right because we like that's like god figure like you don't want to like picture your god as someone who would do something like this right it would ruin everything yeah um and he was like a big deal and that's the thing it's like navigating rock and roll through a racially divided country and going through all like the civil liberties movements like that is that's crazy and he was a forerunner and like paved the path for like a lot of musicians and black musicians yeah very important but then what the fuck are you having sex with a 14 year old for right and i just look at this it's just like another classic story of powerful men in powerful positions being allowed to like you know abuse their power and it's everyone else in the less powerful positions and women being like, you know, that marginalized Mm -hmm. group as well. Yeah. That have to deal with the consequences of the actions of these powerful men. Yeah. Literally the 1.3 billion out of, or 1.3 million out of everything he has just to settle this crazy shit is like not even like a dent. So I don't know how you can put a price on like, that those women are probably like, think about it every time they Mm -hmm. like, and he wouldn't have like, it would not have even gone to court if they did not sue him in the first place. So, so everything that they found is not even like, is not a crime enough. Like, yeah. The fact that it was not consensual. Was that just because they couldn't really like prove not? Yeah. They couldn't like exactly trace it back to like, he was the one that set it up and like, or yeah, yeah, was exactly probably, but I mean, freaking, I don't know, do some detective work and I'm sure you'll get there. Just the fact that there were no criminal charges is very like, Maybe that's How? also why it's, it's kind of more swept under the rug. Exactly, you know? because they were literally able to settle it. But I'm just, it just ticks me off because yeah. why does it take for the victims to come forward for there to be punishment? Yeah, especially with all that evidence. Exactly. Like specifically. Um, Th- that was, I don't want to say that was good, again. but like you did I a good really job. I really apologize. No, that was I mean, alarming to read. And I yeah. went on like a rabbit hole and just like reading. If you I guys mean, how can, can you find, not? Because that's very alarming. I'll link, I'm going to link my sources in the notes, but if you guys can look at that Spy Magazine article, the fact that that is published in a magazine somewhere, I want to get my hands on the original magazine. I'd pay good money for that magazine, TBH. It's probably on eBay somewhere or something, yeah. don't you think? I need it. Yeah. I need my Toilet Gate magazine. Yeah. I... Yep. So, sorry. Um, logging off now. Goodbye. <laughs> you were gripping that Squishmallow so... I am so, like... Strongly. That was, like, I was just gripping it so crazy that whole time because I was just cringing and I couldn't relax, like, in between my cringes. So, yeah. I just, like, yeah. Ooh. We got through it. Yeah, we did. And you know that's not even the worst part because yeah. you haven't gone yet. I haven't gone yet. <laughs> Mine's, like, Yo. bad on, like, a, a different kind of level. Like, not level, but, like, it's, like, it's different. <laughs> It'd be different. Okay, so people who are a little too squeamish for Clarice's story, you can hop on back over here and listen or to Or maybe mine. just stay off I, because I'm you also going can't. to be giving some... Um, I'm going to give a few warnings at the top here before I really get into it. I do have some kind of intense details of the actual murder. I'm going to try not to really go into super high detail. I just am warning. It's a very, it's a pretty violent and graphic. It's it's a little graphic, yeah, towards the end. But a lot of this, I'm. it's not like the main point of like the whole I mean it is whatever okay (laughs) I'm gonna try to like be as respectful as I can aside from that I did come across like right before you came over Mm -hmm. I was kind of seeing that some of the members of this band I'm not exactly sure if it was him or another member like them as a whole Mm -hmm. may have been a little a lot like racially insensitive there was like a lot of like tabloidy type Mm. articles but then there was also like I couldn't really tell like what was so I just want to put that out there that I I didn't really write about it only because it wasn't it didn't come up in my research originally okay so it's not like um, it it didn't seem interesting same people but not to this story that's being told yeah I'd like I don't want to be insensitive or be like this guy was a great guy and then later find out that he wasn't 
it didn't come up when I was okay. really researching him himself. Okay, okay. So I'm going to be talking about Daryl Lance Abbott, a.k.a. Diamond Daryl or Dimebag Daryl. Okay, All right, Dimebag. So for a majority of this, his stage name was Diamond Daryl. But I'm just going to call him Daryl, and I'll let you know when the switch happens to Dimebag. Thank you. We can, we can stick with the Daryl. Daryl Lance Abbott was the guitarist of heavy metal bands Pantera and Damage Plan. He co-founded these two bands alongside his brother named Vinnie Paul, or Vincent. I, most of these articles said Vinnie, so. Okay. And he's often regarded as one of the greatest heavy metal guitarists of all time. And as someone who doesn't usually listen to a lot of heavy metal, I do know that heavy metal guitarists are like speedy and do all these crazy riffs and like incredible technique. Like very so their technique is impeccable. It's next level. Yeah. So to say like he's regarded as one of the greatest heavy metal of all time or guitarists is a pretty big deal. So he was born on August 20th, 1966 in Texas from his mom, Carolyn, and his dad, Jerry. Jerry Abbott was actually a country music songwriter and record producer. Okay. It didn't seem like he had too many like accolades previous to his son's bands. Okay. But he did work in the industry and like at record labels and stuff. His parents got divorced in his early teens, but they still had a very happy family life. Jerry lived like a pretty close, the mom and dad's house were pretty close together. So they were still able to all connect and it didn't, I didn't find anything that seemed like super hostile. He seemed to have like a pretty good upbringing, like very supportive. At the age of 12, his father started giving him guitar lessons. Daryl was mostly influenced by Black Sabbath, Kiss, Van Halen, along those lines. So Daryl's father has been described as, quote, only one person who really knows what shaped and influenced Daryl's love of music and the guitar. In addition to kickstarting Daryl's career as a guitarist by giving him his first batch of lessons, he managed and engineered and produced Pantera from their formation in 81, right up to the band's landing a major label deal in late 89. Okay, so like highly involved. So he was very involved, yeah. Pantera was born in 81. Vinny was actually asked to join this band alongside his high school classmates. So those classmates included Terry Glaze on the guitar, Tommy Bradford on bass, and Donnie Hart on vocals. Vinny accepted this invitation, but on the condition that Daryl would also join the band. Glaze later recalled that they were unsure about this request as Daryl, quote, wasn't very good. And two years their junior, quote, was a very skinny and scrawny dude. (laughs) But they ultimately agreed, obviously. So (laughs) as we are here today. In 82, um, the vocalist Hart left the band and was replaced by Glaze on vocals while Rex Brown took Bradford's place as the bassist. So they're all kind of moving around trying to figure out mm-hmm. what's going on here. They were originally kind of in like the glam metal rock. Not super heavy and also very Not super heavy, very performative. A lot of like Glitz. glam. It's not glam. It's kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, will. It's not super heavy. Mm-hmm. I would say it's like a generally accessible form of metal That's music. a good way of putting it. So they signed to Metal Magic Records under the- <laughs> Metal that. Magic Records was actually just Jerry Abbott's. He just used an alias and came up with Metal Magic Records and signed his son's band. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but they released their first album, Metal Magic, when Daryl was only 16. Whoa. Yeah. So they're all pretty young. Like they're like pretty much fresh out of high school. Or fresh, like, still in high school. school. Yeah, I was like, you graduating at 16? Yeah. (laughs) They released two more albums in 84 and 85 called Projects in the Jungle and I Am the Night. Around this time, the Abbott brothers began listening to bands such as Metallica and Slayer. Glaze was unhappy with the Abbott brothers' desire to move forward towards, like, a heavier sound. He later said that he didn't want to go that heavy. He didn't like it as well if the guitar was the main part of the the song, the show, you know. This conflict, along with a contractual dispute, led to Glaze's departure in uh, 1986. So there's like a lot of band members going in and out of this band. So he was later replaced by Phil Anselmo. I'm going to say Anselmo. 
Okay. He became the, the lead singer for like majority of this band's rise to fame. So the be- band began distancing themselves from glam metal, but the album Power Metal released in 1988 evidenced a stylistic change. So this is kind of where they're kind of coming into their signature, what people sound, know them as yeah. sound. Yeah. They eventually attained a major record label deal with Atco Records. They released the album Cowboys from Hell <laughs> yes. in 1990, which is a great album name. Yes, it, is. <laughs> it did mark the development of what would become their familiar sound. And Daryl's guitar playing was very central in okay. this album. It was self-described as a, quote, power groove. The album became a blueprint to finding work for groove metal. And basically groove metal is just a subgenre with like the heaviness and intensity of thrash metal. Okay. But played at kind of like a slower tempo. So it was so like... grooves a bit more. Yeah, like- yeah. Southern rock elements were also incorporated into this sound. Cowboy. Yeah, cowboy. cowboy comes in. <laughs> well, like you also think back like... They're from Texas. They're from Texas. Their dad's a country music guy. Texas yeah. metal, y'all. Their groove is commonly attributed to the Abbott Brothers' fondness of ZZ Top. <laughs> so Cue this the Duck Dynasty yeah. <laughs> intro. Stop. Bad. So Cowboys from Hell was certified gold in 1993 and certified platinum in 97. They toured this album for nearly two years, around like 200 shows, which is kind of insane. When I read that, I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, Yeah. what? Yeah. (laughs) What? Um, During this tour, Daryl gained a reputation of being kind of like a wild guy and a very heavy drinker, which I think is not very uncommon for like the rock and roll, not even just rock and roll, like the whole music industry, like touring and shit like that, like especially in this era of rock and metal and all that to say that he gained a reputation as a heavy drinker kind of is like alarming to me, but beside the point. In 92, they released Vulgar Display of Power. That was also like a refinement of their groove metal sound. So they're kind of, each time they're releasing a new album, it's kind of, they're more coming into their own type of thing. These are some fantastic They really do have some really fun titles. (laughs) What? So um, this album debuted at number 44 on the Billboard Top 200 and stayed on the charts for about 79 weeks, which is a very long time. Yeah, it is. In 2017, it was actually ranked number 10 in Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest metal albums of all time. Number 10. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So yeah, that's up there. Through the evolution of the band's sound over the years, Daryl's personal style and persona on stage also transformed into the look that he maintained for the rest of his life. So that included a dyed goatee, a razor blade pendant, and then just like cargo shorts and sleeveless shirts. The dyed goatee though, I had I I felt like that was Yeah, look at look him up. At that point, he also felt that the stage name Diamond Daryl was no longer fitting to his image or his sound so he eventually adopted the stage name Dimebag Daryl. Dimebag Daryl actually came from a reference Mm. to Daryl's refusal to accept more than a dime bag at one time even offered for free as he did not want to be caught with the drug on hand. It's not even like hard drugs. No. (laughs) They were stated in saying that while other metal bands around this time were releasing albums that would get less heavy over the albums went on they were constantly trying to, quote, top themselves. Mm -hmm. So they were getting heavier and heavier as opposed to these other bands that were kind of coming up around the same time that would almost like try to become like a little more commercial, which I feel like is a little more common. Mm -hmm. But they they kind of prided themselves in like the evolution of their sound and like they felt really committed to... Just like developing it. Yeah, yeah. Now I'm going to kind of get into like the tension and the separation of the band. Okay. This isn't even like the bad stuff. I know. We're just, uh, now we've like reached the top of the hill and now we're not even, not even at the top oh, no, of the girl. hill. We haven't even started the descent. No. Okay. <laughs> okay. We're still hiking. That's fine. Yeah. Does none of this sound familiar to you? Do you not know like what happened? No, not yet. Okay. My brain is working so hard right now. <laughs> I'm just going to leave you, it. But when you said dime bag, Daryl, that sounded familiar. Okay. So the 1994 tour for the album Far Beyond Driven, lead singer had chronic back pain. So that's uh, Anselmo. He had chronic back pain that he self-medicated with heavy alcohol use, painkillers, and then eventually heroin. 
that's a good mix yeah so he was really mm, just mix it up in the pot yeah it was said even by him that he would before he would go on stage he would drink an entire bottle of a spirit and You're then joking yeah and like it's okay. yeah <laughs> that's, a, that's a bit much I so mean, yeah he would travel on his own tour bus aside <laughs> and isolate himself from the other band members until about 20 to 30 minutes before they were due what? to perform so he was just like on his own like really being a weirdo he, no he was just like so severely addicted to opiates so and he was also noted as often interrupting performances by just ranting on stage or having like outbursts almost which is not surprising because like when you're on that mix you know in may of 1996 the great southern treadkill was released it was recorded separately also so the lead singer recorded in even a whole different studio than the rest of the band that'll make for a good band bonding moment yeah so he was really he was really pushing away yeah he was not really present at all anymore It did peak at number four on the Billboard 200, staying in the chart for about 13 weeks. It is considered to be Pantera's most extreme work. So, like extreme in like the sound sense, or like extreme in like the legendary sense. I would both? say probably both, but okay. um, I, I don't know. I think. It's probably more so of like going back to like they kept trying to top themselves with like the heaviness of right. their sound. I think this is the most extreme that they okay. got. The most heavy. Yeah. I'm sorry. I also forgot to say I should have said in the, my trigger warnings. I am going to be talking a little more about drugs and other things like that. So I'm sorry that I didn't say that earlier, but it's only for a few more minutes. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> On July 13th, Anselmo overdosed on heroin following the band's performance in Dallas and was clinically dead for four to five minutes. Oh, shit. He actually recovered quickly and performed at the band's next show in San Antonio two days later. He was like, okay, I was dead two days ago and I'm here. Rock on. Are you joking? Yeah. I found that so troubling. Oh my God. Four to five minutes. That's like a long. And then two days later, he performed at a show. Like nothing fucking happened. Yeah. What? So he, again, he was in the trenches of this addiction. Yes. He literally died. Yeah. Obviously, this incident created a lasting rift within the band, even more so than what had already been going on. This is kind of a tipping point for everyone yeah, where they were like, just hey, like, we can't do this. Yeah. yeah. The touring for this album also continued to widen this rift, obviously, because... They didn't stop yeah. touring. No, they didn't stop touring. <laughs> do you think if he died, they would have stopped touring? I'm not sure. That's that's troubling. Yeah. That's more tr- I don't really know. I feel like I can't say whether or not they would have, but... I don't know if it was, like, his decision to perform. I don't know. He just seemed so isolated from everyone else. Like, Yeah, yeah so back to Daryl. In September 1999, Daryl's mother was actually diagnosed with lung cancer and died only six weeks later. And that obviously had a very profound effect on not That's only Daryl, but his brother Vinny. Turnaround. Yeah, That's so, so terrible. In September 2001... They were supposed to begin a European tour. They were all in Europe. And then 9-11 happened. So they were in Europe. Yeah. So they all flew back to the States and agreed to take a hiatus. They were just kind of like, okay, we need... This is a lot. Everything that's been happening. So they were hoping to regroup by 2003. But in 2003, Brown quit the band and eventually Pantera came to an end. But the Abbott brothers eventually formed a new band in hopes that they would avoid like legal trouble and branding issues um, okay. from continuing or replacing band members. Because okay. they had kind of already really been through it, you know? Yeah, and especially with the core four members and all the albums they released. Yeah. yeah. I think they just kind of were like, let's start something new. So they named this new band Damage Plan. So they had Patrick Lockman on vocals and Bob mm, Kaka. Nope. Kakaha. <laughs> God. His. On base. His name is Bob. Um, I'm screaming. <laughs> it's spelled K-A-K-A-H-A. How do you pronounce that? Yeah, no, you're... That That was that was very right, I think. Slay. Okay. Kakaha. 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 That sounds right. Okay. Um, Kakaha. Yeah. Sorry, I was like... I wrote it down and I knew, even as I was writing my paper up here, 
my homework. Oh, <laughs> um, that's funny. I wrote it down and I went, I have to look that up before I start talking. And of, of course I didn't. No. Um, <laughs> my apologies, Bob. So Damage Plan's releases did not chart as well as Pantera's. They had some commercial success, but not it didn't. Yeah, it didn't like compare really. Yeah. How can you? Damage Plan spent most of 2004 on its Devastation Across the Nation tour. They were attempting to rebuild their fan base and the band toured nightclubs across the country and the members had planned to record a follow up album. So here we are. Here we are now. At the top of the mountain. (sighs) Yeah. Shit. (laughs) Shit. I'm going to kind of... I'm like looking down at the other end and I'm like, "Mm, this is a really tall mountain. Yeah. We're going to be falling for a little bit. Yeah. I'm actually kind of nervous. I just started sweating. So I'm going to... just gave me that the most insane... Guys, she just like... (laughs) She just gave me the most insane pause and look where she was like, okay. And I I like knew... (laughs) I like grabbed onto something that I just, wasn't there. I kind of like how you know nothing about this, so I'm really trying to play oh it up. Oh my god! Like drama. I really hope this isn't one of those things where if I did, I've just like blocked it out because it's so bad, and then you're just gonna. I didn't know anything up. about this. Okay, so let's ugh, let's just do it. Okay. I'm ready. Strap. So in. I'm gonna switch from talking about our boys Daryl and Vince, the Abbott brothers, and their bands, to a man named Nathan Gale. Okay, so outsider. Outsider. Nathan Gale was often described as a oddball or a loner. He had a few minor run-ins with the police over the years, and he bounced around from job to job, working as a mechanic, landscaper, pavement cleaner, etc., like those kind of jobs. Handyman. Yeah. He served in the Marine Corps from February 2002 to November 2003. He obviously didn't finish out his, what is it, service. Mm -hmm. The circumstances of his discharge are suspected to be a Section 8 case, which means it's used for a service member who's judged mentally unfit for service. There's a little more to the Section 8, but it's not relevant in this case. So So we're dealing with some sort of psychological condition. Yeah. Okay. So writings of his found at this time were indicative of some sort of schizophrenia or similar type of disorder. Gail later served as like an auto mechanic with the 2nd Marine Division at the Marine Corps base in North Carolina. So he, again, he was kind of just going from job to job. He was trying to kind of find his place. He didn't really have a lot of luck with women or meeting friends. He was just kind of like a weird guy, mm-hmm. but people did describe him as like friendly. They were just like, he's weird, like or off-putting, but yeah. like they would also use the word friendly. So yeah, he was a very passionate fan of the band Pantera. Gail apparently took the group's breakup in 2003 as a personal insult. Oh no. He has a former friend named Mark Brake. He gave a few interviews or he wrote some things about his then friend Gail, just kind of describing like what he saw in their relationship. Okay, so like in their friendship. Yeah. So Mark Brake was quoted saying, when they broke up, I think he felt some kind of personal connection. Like he felt left out or betrayed. This kid listened to their albums every day. He was obsessed. Also super fan. Yes. He also did say that he was known for bizarre behavior, such as petting an imaginary dog or staring at walls while muttering to himself. So a little, some delusion. He was also said to frequently be the butt of jokes and Mm -hmm. very uncomfortable around women. Yikes. Brake also said that he and others began distancing themselves from him about eight months previous to what I'm about to talk about. um, When he claimed that Pantera stole music and lyrics from him and spoke about killing others. Brake said, he told me once that God told him to kill Marilyn Manson. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no. So we're now in December 8th, 2004 in Columbus, Ohio. At the All Rosa Villa. Damage Plan was playing a concert and Nathan Gale rushed the stage and proceeded to shoot and kill Daryl as well as a few other people at the show. This is live. On stage. On stage. This is kind of where it gets a little graphic. Oh, no, so I apologize. No, no, no. no. Daryl was shot a total of five times, twice at point blank range in the head. Again, on stage. Daryl was only 38 years old. According to the police, Gail fired a total of 15 shots, taking the time to reload only once and remaining silent throughout the shooting. 
following this, Gail turned the gun on those who had rushed up to the stage to help stop him. Some other of the victims are an audience member named Nathan Bray. He was 23. A club employee named Aaron Halk, 29. Jeff Mayhem Thompson, a member of the band's security entourage. He was 40. He also wounded the band's tour manager, Chris Poluska. And the drum technician, John Cat Brooks. During this, it's a rampage. During this rampage, Gail took Brooks, the drum technician, and held him in a headlock position after the technician attempted to wrestle him to the ground. Columbus police officer, James D. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. It looks, I'm going to say Nygmeyer. He was the first police officer at the scene. As Gail is holding Brooks in a headlock, he moves slightly, and this police officer shot Gail in the face with a 12-gauge shotgun. What? And there is footage of all of this. I obviously did not watch it. I don't know if it's on the internet anymore. This was all, this was recorded. Oh my god, no. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is really graphic. Okay, part of the reason I'm freaking out just because one, didn't know officers carried around a 12-gauge. I know. Also, for our listeners, that's Whoever's like, still listening, maybe um, no one. That's like freaking Elmer Fudd in Looney Tunes. Yeah, it's like a big, hunting right? yeah, shotgun. Like a, yeah, that's what a twelve gauge is, and those are not nice. Very big. Oh my god. They do a lot of damage. Oh shotguns. my god. Yeah, they do. Obviously, this officer was visibly shaken by this incident. At what just had occurred, he reportedly kept repeating, "I had to do it. I had to do it." A roadie from Damage Plan tried to assure him that he did the right thing and he saved lives during this rampage. Nurse and audience member Mindy Reese, who is 28, went to immediately try to do CPR for um, Daryl. She and another fan administered this until paramedics arrived. According to some reports, victim Nathan Bray was also attempting to render assistance when he was killed. So he kind of like went up there to help and... Gail's motive for the killings may never really be known. He didn't have any sort of like manifesto or anything like that. Though some witnesses state that he shouted something about the breakup of Pantera before he started shooting. This has been investigated and I did find conflicting reports about his motives that some people say that police have investigated that motive and haven't really found anything so they dismissed it. Again, I'm not really sure. It's actually common for mass murderers to be provoked by a single triggering event typically rejection or public humiliation. Although there usually is some sort of buildup, obviously, there's always like a singular event that will... This event is thought to be an alleged argument that he started at a tattoo shop that he frequented after being told that he couldn't just buy a tattoo gun and become a tattoo artist without any training or license. Yeah, I don't know. That seems a little... That seems a little random to me, but I'm not really sure. Maybe, I don't know. Someone who knew him personally said, quote, When I heard the news, I was totally shocked, but not surprised. I mean, you knew Nate wasn't going to stop until he did something. The music, the military, he just wasn't someone who was going to lay down and not be anybody. I think regardless of his motives, he definitely thought that he had a right to do this. Like, like, it was like a higher calling yeah, or something. Like, yeah. it, again, like the delusion. And he, yeah, he obviously was struggling with some sort of like paranoia or, or schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't help that he got military weapons training. I did read, I didn't write too much about like his time in the Marine Corps, but mm-hmm. there were some of his past friends that said, that asked him why he went to the military or why he joined it or whatever or like if he liked it or not and he basically was like I learned how to blow stuff up and I got to shoot things and yeah pretty alarming stuff like I know people it's like you go there for structure yeah and it's good for that right but it is the military so you do get weapons training which is scary yeah for them you to just be discharged without having I don't want to say a productive outlet for said weapons training but you know allowing access to any of that yeah yeah so I'm sorry to get so graphic but it's really awful and I'm surprised I had never heard of that because it's so oh my god and just the fact that there's like this whole thing that you just described probably lasted like 15 minutes not even probably yeah i'm assuming it was a pretty quick yeah oh my goodness yeah and then that ending yeah um poor whoever was being held in a headlock yeah 
He was injured, but he ended up living. I couldn't even... I have a photographic memory. Yeah. So my thoughts play in my brain like a movie. Yeah, I'm so sorry. (laughs) And what is going in my brain right now? Holy moly. Yeah. After that, like the concert goers and stuff who didn't get injured, they were just kind of left to their own devices. Yeah, what the fuck do you do after that? They just go to a concert. That shit happened. That's the scary thing is that this happened in 2004. Yeah. How many concert shootings have happened within the last few years? Yeah. And it's crazy because I think Abbott's family actually did end up trying to sue this venue. I couldn't really find too much about like the like outcome of that. Reasons, yeah, because that checks out. Which I do kind of understand because if you think about it, it's it's very close in time to 9-11. Yeah. And you would think that like security would have been yeah, increased or right, you know, right. Or at protocols least, like, would have been taken. Just how did he get in there with all that kind of thing? Yeah. Absolutely. So, Literally, how do how do any of these people get into fucking concerts? Yeah. That's insane. I I see. No, no, I had no, no, I did not know about that. I didn't know about this either. Sorry for the intensity, but this is is like cuckoo. So I do kind of have, I don't want to say it's on a lighter note because it's not really, but going back to Daryl, let's not focus on this piece of shit anymore. Yeah, no. Several months before his murder, Daryl found out from one of his industry contacts that Eddie Van Halen and Charvel guitars were going to produce a limited edition series of guitars bearing Van Halen's trademark tape striping. So Van Halen himself would individually be taping each guitar, and they would also come with a picture of him doing it so that it could be like a certificate. It was like a big collaboration. According to Eddie Van Halen, Daryl called him on the phone and asked if he could be able to purchase one before they became available to the public. Eddie replied that the next time he saw Daryl, he would have one of the guitars with him um, and would stripe it in his presence as a gift. Wow. Before they could meet again, Daryl was murdered. So Eddie actually recounted the story when he spoke at Daryl's funeral. Wow. To the surprise of those in attendance, he brought out a black and yellow tape striped guitar seen on the back cover of Van Halen 2 which Daryl had said was his favorite guitar of Eddie's, and laid it in Daryl's casket to be buried with him. Wow. That one got me. That is insane. Because you think about that, it's like he grew up playing Van Halen's yeah. stuff. Doesn't that just make you want to burst into tears? What the fuck, like, I'm about dude? To burst into oh tears. my God, this is so terrible. So that is the life and legacy and eventual murder of Dimebag Daryl. That is so... Because imagine where they'd be right now. Yeah. It's always that. Like, imagine where they'd be having Van Halen be at your funeral. Yeah. Oh, no! Well, that was great, but that was fucking terrible. But good job. Thank you. Thanks, anyways, for listening. If you've made it this far, you have stronger willpower than me. We barely made it through this one. It's It's been a very trying... These are trying times. Yeah, we're going to go take like a little nap or something. Yeah, nap sounds so Or go nice. get a little snacky snack. <sighs> snacky um, snack time. So I encourage you to... Do the same. Do the same. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself, you little sweet honeys. These little, little sweet, little, little sweet babes. pea pod podcasters. Oh my God. I know, that was so <laughs> bad. That was not the right... Cut it out. <laughs> All, All right. right, we love you. Bye. Bye. If you like what you hear, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, rate and subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. Tell us what you think on our Twitter or Instagram, at Record Crimes Pod. Have a suggestion or something you want to hear on the podcast? Send us an email at recordcrimespod at gmail.com.